What's up, brother? Uh, not too much, man. How about you? Doing good. It's uh, Thursday morning. Feeling feeling pretty good on a lot of fronts. Um, just to be clear, we recorded last week, and uh, I thought your portion of the episode was really good. I just thought I felt a little bit off um, after I listened to it. You know, probably being able to flash back to what I was thinking or feeling whenever we talked, and I just. I felt a little bit off all last week, and I thought some of the the direction of my conversation was a little bit more negative than I wanted to put out. Not necessarily bad, but just, you know, shit's really tough right now for a lot of people, and I don't want to, I guess what I'm really trying to get at is I don't want to compound people's negativity by just adding more te- negativity. So, sorry for, for doing two of those. I did enjoy the conversation with you, like I said, last week, even if... Even if I didn't decide to post it, if we just got on a phone call, it'd be good to catch up. But glad we're doing yeah. this again, just to put it that way. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. But one thing that I kind of wanted to do differently for the podcast on Piece of the Meat, because I said, you know, I haven't really done any in a while. Um, and it's not for lack of want to. It's It's kind of honestly been a little bit rooted in the fact that, man, people are just getting their asses kicked you know, large and wide. And, uh, you know, I keep trying to find ways to add something worth saying, you know, I've, I've felt a lot of friction with posting things that are kind of trivial or or pointless, but at the same time, I've also wanted to post things that are funny and lighthearted. So I don't know, man, I just, I just wanted to bring something different to the table and, and maybe I've overthought it, but Regardless, it's uh, it's good to be talking to you. It's good to see all the cool stuff that you're doing as far as your training. And I know that you're kicking ass at work and raising a family and stuff. So I always have a high amount of respect for you. But to, uh, to let the people know where this episode is going, we're kind of going to do five or six different topics and just kind of talk about some things and maybe give some people some insight to individual struggles and individual overcome comings as well as maybe get to know you a little bit better and share some thoughts on on things that you're into but overall man how have things been for you uh, things have been great um uh, been dealing with a kind of a might be a pinched nerve or something in my neck that goes down into my shoulder so it kind of affects my sleep and my training a little bit so i've been actually adapting my training yeah. to still be able to train and get movement in um other than that, everything everything's going pretty good uh, across all fronts: work, family, training, friends. Yeah, has a like has your like overall body state right now? Do you feel really really strong? Do you feel like you're in better condition than you are strong? Do you feel stronger than you're in condition? I mean, where would you say you are in kind of the ups and downs of training right now? Uh, right now, I think my conditioning is um, higher than it's ever been, and mm-hmm. definitely uh, talking with Matt, uh, he he put it a little into perspective. Right. Being my coach, he said, whenever I first started versus now, my conditioning is is extremely high, mm-hmm. and I almost immediately cut out uh, over over resting between sets which is something uh, resting a whole lot 
comes from uh, powerlifting days, you know, the whole, <laughs> yeah. the whole let, let me do one rep and then I'll rest t- 10 minutes and then I'll do another rep. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, it's weird, man. Cause I remember those days and I remember, you know, it was almost, I don't know if it was the best, but it was somewhat conducive to the mindset as well. You know, like you needed that time to get under a heavy weight. You needed that, that break, even as crazy as it sounds being like one rep or a double or even a triple. Um, I look back at some of my training videos. I don't do that often, but I look back at some of the training videos and just kind of remember for the first time in a long time, one, how big I actually was, how strong I actually was, but really just how poor of shape that I was in. And when I was doing strongman. I was actually in really, really good shape. And that was probably probably my biggest strength was the fact that I remained somewhat athletic over stronger guys because, you know, strongman was, you know, most competitions were designed to be somewhat accentuating athleticism and somewhat athletic, you know, accentuating strength. And I was usually a pretty good blend of both. But when I went into powerlifting, um, especially at Westside, my, my body weight, and my strength levels became the only two focuses I had gain more weight, get stronger, <laughs> be as big as a house, you know, but, um, I feel so much better now. I mean, how do you feel versus your training when you were powerlifting? Not necessarily like, you know, are you happier or whatever, but just like from a body standpoint, do you feel more capable? Do you feel more, you know, what, is, what has been the biggest mental shift for you about how you feel about your body? I feel more capable to be able to do anything um, that that I might have to come across in in mm. any given day. Because I mean, with powerlifting, I, I felt strong and I really liked uh, feeling that strong and moving the heavy weights. Even though, uh, comparatively to other humans, you know, I wasn't competitive with my numbers, but I was competitive with myself and happy with where I was, which, sure. you know, I, I doubt very, there's a, there's a very small portion of human beings in the world that will ever know what it feels like to have 500 pounds sitting on their shoulders mm-hmm. and to control it down at least, you know, yeah. cause, cause, cause that takes skill in and of itself, even if you don't, fully return up with it. If you can control the weight down, that's just still saying something about the strength and, and control you have over your body. But I'll, I doubt I'll ever find myself in a situation where I have to put 500 pounds on my back and use my legs to push it. Mm-hmm. I'm more likely to find myself in a position where I have to possibly run for appreciable distance mm-hmm. or stand there and fight and dodge something or, you know, put my body in, in the way of something and protect somebody else, which I sure. feel more capable of uh, right now than I did when I was powerlifting. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things that, and it goes right into the first topic that we're going to talk about, you know, kind of the, the greatest gain or the overall, progression that you felt during COVID. And I think for me, um, having the ability to switch my mindset somewhat, because it's not easy. Like 
I, I'm not saying that your transition was easy at all, you know, because we've even talked about the feeling of, of, okay, should I go into more of a mobility type training? How will my strength evolve and all this kind of stuff? I mean, everybody that has chased strength, I think has some sort of a, a transition point when they go into more fluidity and movement and like the kettlebell work, the mace work, those kind of things, because it's not always, um, you know, it's not always five more pounds on the bar or one more rep, you know, that you're, you're chasing specifically. And a lot of times, especially with Greg's stuff and Matt and Heather as well, you know, you're chasing perfection of form first. And I think that gets lost in powerlifting, but for me through my injuries and, and kind of having that decision somewhat forced for me, um, it was very, very difficult, but I would say that I think COVID has given me an opportunity to do exactly what you're saying, evolve my body in such a way that it's capable and ready for anything. And I don't think that I'm necessarily prepping for a doomsday, but it is nice to know it, to have that confidence that, okay, if I needed to run, I can run. If I needed to climb, I can climb. If I needed to carry something relatively heavy for a long way, I can do that. I mean, I think for me in a, in a time where there's so many uncertainties, the one thing I try to be sure of in myself or be sure of is myself, you know, and I, that's something that you and I've talked about a little bit. And I think that, you know, from the fact that you're cooking, you're training, you're, you're taking more initiative with your job and things like that. Speak to some of the feelings that you had when COVID really started and kind of the ups and downs that you felt throughout the past year or so. Yeah, I would have to say one of the biggest gains through this past year uh, plus is more visibility with my family, especially mm -hmm. my daughter. So they are more aware of what it is I'm doing and they see more of me being active and uh me being able to talk with them, uh, especially especially my daughter, and relay the importance of of movement and why I do certain things, uh, and then she starts to notice. Well, so and so down the street, they don't they don't work out with their dad, and you know one one answer might be well they don't have the specific things we have in our garage, so they might not be doing the same thing. But your friends across the street with their dad, they're out there in the street riding their bike, riding the scooter, skateboard, roller skates. So they're doing something that is active, but it's different than what we're doing. Sure. I mean, do you think she's – because I know she's out in the gym with you a lot. Do you think that she actually wants to be better and she's just a bit – shy about things or do you think that she really cares or do you think that she's doing it at your encouragement i mean what is your hope for having her train with you every day so that's that i actually made a, the post yesterday about that uh, right have, having a difficulty discerning between when she actually does not want to do the style of training or the style of whatever activity it is. Cause it doesn't, it's not just single to training itself. Um, 
but whether she's just not interested in it and it's not her cup of tea versus she doesn't want to attempt something uh, maybe out of fear of failure or it's too difficult. Right. Uh, or or uh, fear. Because you know, she, uh, she does have a fear of heights, so hanging from a pull-up bar is scary for her. Mm. Uh, and couple that with uh, a lack of confidence or actually realization of strength in shoulders and lats to actually pull and do a movement, she doesn't want to fail in, in front of me Mm. So she doesn't even want to try because she doesn't want me to see her fail. Um, and this is all, that that's all just kind of a, a thought process in, in my mind. You know, she, she may not be able to verbalize that, but that's possibly what's going on in her head. Sure. And so for, for me, I want her to be active. I think for the, for, for, the first few years of her life, four or five years, she never saw me in the in the gym. She saw me at power a, a few powerlifting meets, but that wasn't like, oh, I'm going to watch Daddy work out. It's I'm going to go watch Daddy lift some heavy things a couple of times and then he's done. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's not really like, okay, wow, he's 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 really pushing himself for for an extended period of time, being active. And so it's, it's an uphill battle to get her to be active. And then as a kid, short attention span. So if her friends ride by on their bike while we're in the gym, she goes, hey, can I go play with my friends? I say, hey, look, I want you to play with your friends. But right now, I want you to focus and move and at least acknowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to do something. And kind of doesn't have to be a long workout or or heavy but just that you're listening and you're actually doing what I'm asking you to do for sure well I think it's awesome man and I think one of the things that you know just outside observation looking in is you've really connected with a network of other fathers and men that are kind of looking towards each other not necessarily like you know, as an influencer or as someone that they idolize, but just like a common group of peers, you know, even the group with you, myself, Casey and Taylor texting somewhat. And I've got a couple of those other groups. Have you felt like, uh, through COVID you've turned to that more or needed more of that kind of stuff? Like the, the little deeper form of networking, you know, I, I don't necessarily text a whole bunch of people, but I do converse with a lot of people on Instagram, but throughout COVID, it seems like I found myself in three or four of these little pod groups where it was four to six people, you know, just talking and chatting about different things. Um, I got one, the guys that I hunt without in Oklahoma, which I think, man, if uh, I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to jump around too much, but I'm trying to get something together out there in Oklahoma on a pig hunt. And I think that would be something that'd be really cool if uh, if we can get it put together sometime in the summer. If you can make it out to that, that would be really good because it's very low pressure. You know, something like turkey and deer, there's a lot more kind of riding on the line there because obviously you have a limited number of options. And if you see one, that's another kind of caveat to the whole hunt is 
being able to find the deer, see the deer and, and take the shot. But with pigs, it's a really, you know, it's a nuisance problem that the farmers are desperate to solve. And then also there's just so many of them and the meat is good. The, the time is good. You know, being out in the woods, just, you're always going to see pigs out in Oklahoma. So it's, um, it's just a matter of opportunity at that point from how long you're willing to sit and how close you think you can get. But I think that'd be fun uh, to get you out there and, and be a part of that because that would introduce you to a whole different network of guys, you know, that are out there trying to do the same shit you're doing, you know, training, trying to raise a family, trying to check all the boxes of like being a capable human, you know, learning to hunt for your meat, learning to start fires, learning to camp and all this other stuff. So keep your, uh, keep your eyes and ears open whenever I get that put together. Cause I think Josh Dobby and a couple of guys from Sorenex are going to try to come out there too. I don't know if Bert will make a pig hunt there cause he hunts at the, at the hunting lodge out there in South Carolina and they have pigs everywhere, but I think it'd be fun. You can't really bow hunt in South Carolina on those pigs. <laughs> have you been able to shoot your bow much lately? Uh, haven't, done it for a few weeks just out of concern of, of, of my shoulder and, and my neck not wanting yeah. to put too much tension on it um but yeah that that sounds great out in oklahoma and yeah. it would definitely definitely connect me with a, a, another group of guys and like you said i do find myself relying more on these groups of of men most of whom are fathers Mm-hmm. And mostly through through Instagram, there, very few of them have I met in person. But I, I find myself relying on that more over the past year because, um, for for few reasons, other you know people within my friend circle, uh, if a few of them aren't comfortable with being in person, meeting in person, then you know our, our weekly gaming sessions hadn't been happening in person for about six months now, but last week was the first time we started in person. And so we're all excited about that. Um, so, but I, I connect with my friends a little, um, differently than, than the dads and the, and the men in these groups. Uh, for some reason, I don't talk much about real life with them. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, we're going to hang out, boil some crawfish, grill some meat, play uh, play board games, or, you know, just just talk. Um, Are you specifically talking about uh, Dungeons & Dragons? Because that was the game that you talked about before. Yeah, so Dungeons & Dragons, we, we have a, this will be the third year. So we're about to make our third anniversary of every two weeks um, playing a, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, which is actually a pretty, pretty long, pretty long campaign to continuously do because they tend to fizzle out after a little while because trying to get, trying to get grownups to commit every two weeks to meeting up for, for several years in a row, life kind of gets in the way, but we've somehow managed to do so. How so many people all- do you have in your group? Probably about eight. There's probably yeah. eight, about eight of us that that like to play, and uh, so we do like to play Dungeons and Dragons. But there's other um, non Dungeons and Dragons name uh, games, uh, role playing games that we do play. Play, but we also like to play um, 
board games and all sorts of uh, assortment of board games. And a lot of those are fun because they actually get you um, strategizing. Um, there's one in particular recently that I really love. It's called Root. And essentially, it's they call it an asymmetrical strategy game. Mm-hmm. In the base game, they have several expansions, but the base game has four different factions. And each faction has its own rules and its own kind of skills and plays that it does on their turn. And so one of the things that makes it a little harder is not only do you have to remember what your capabilities are, but you have to be aware of the abilities of the other factions to try to, you know, block them from pulling off their 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 coup d'état or you know their their uh, big movements, and it, it it gets complicated. Is the more people you have playing, if you have two pl- people, then you only have to worry about your opponent, sure. one opponent. But when you get up to four people. You really, you know, you might start focusing on on one person, and then the two of y'all are going back and forth, and then the third person is just like over there going, "Okay, they're not worrying about me. I'm doing my thing," and then they end up winning the game. So it's not like chess where each person has the same pieces and they move the same way. Um, so it, so it's, it's it's very fluid then. Yes. It, it it took us a, a while to uh, we, we played it a couple times, but yeah, it, it takes a while to learn. But it, it's it's got some depth to it for sure, man. And that's is it. Um, and and I'm just trying to draw parallels because I played Magic the Gathering a little bit um, when mm-hmm. I was in middle school and my freshman year of high school. And it's interesting because you know a lot of. Uh, a lot of my friends that were on the basketball team or, or soccer team or baseball team, they didn't quite understand that. But I was also in the band and in the chess club and both of those groups, you know, a little, and I don't want to say this, you know, to say that every athlete isn't eclectic or, or whatnot, but you find a little bit different type of personality in band and in chess, a little bit more of a, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to draw any kind of insult towards anyone, but you just see a different type of person in those, in those fields. And I mean, I don't know what it is necessarily, but, um, so just to get back to magic, is it sort of like that where you have to strategize certain cards or, or pieces against other certain pieces and they have certain values or, you know, what's the, what's the driving force to win there? Uh, so basically, there's a there's a board with a map on it, and it's a map of a forest. And each okay. fact each faction is um, some type of woodland creature. So basically, the backstory is um, the birds used to rule the forest, but they've been recently deposed by the cats. And so the cats are this big force that's imposed onto the. Um, forest and the birds are trying to get their throne back and then you have um you have like the rebels the the um kind of like the robin hood people 
Oh, okay. That uh, which are God, I can't I can't remember what what kind of race they were, but you have them which are trying to uh, infiltrate different. Uh, they call clearings, so kind of like cities or, or settlements. They're trying to infiltrate and gain sympathy and do uprisings. Um, and so they're they're against both of those as well. And then you've got um, the Lone Wanderer, which is just somebody that's just going through the forest and and kind of discovering things for himself and he might trade with any of the factions to better himself but he's not really particularly part of the war he's just somebody off by himself and so you you tend to um almost like risk where where you have certain provinces okay. so you want you you want to have you know for for the first three groups or the first two groups rather they're they're pretty much fighting for control over these little clearings and then the third group the uprisers the robin hood people they're just trying to you know create revolts and wreak havoc between the two so they're kind of like you know the off the grid people but okay. connected anarchists almost and then the the fourth person is just basically, if you thought of it in in terms of a book, he's the the main adventurer in a, in a fantasy novel where he's just having his own little adventure, and crazy things are happening in the world. I like that man. I think that you know some people play video games, some people play board games, card games, whatever. I've always been more into uh, card games and, and chess as far as my favorites, but I was always, I always admired, and it's actually pretty cool here in my town, there is a huge, huge gaming shop, like um, well, I don't even know if it's a shop, I think they that individuals can bring in some of their own collectibles and trade them or sell them or whatever. Um, I don't think there's actually an owner um, that's trying to sell anything necessarily, but I think they collectively pay rent, you know, and God, I want to say it's on Thursday nights. It might be tonight. If so, I'll drive up there intentionally and take a picture, but I've seen like 30, 40 kids, adults and everything in there. Um, it's a Dungeons and Dragons, but there's also another game that they play because they hang a poster on the front window. And I guess that lets people know what week it is. So if they're just driving by or want to stop in, they can see. But I think that's really, really cool, man. And it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, those worlds and like alt worlds, um, Aragon, Lord of the Rings, you know, some of that stuff we talked about a little bit before like Narnia, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the depth that some of these authors and, and writers go into, or these game makers go into to just create these worlds is immense. Like, uh, Tolkien and the Silmarillion. Have you ever read that? Hey, so I, I think I've read it like three times in my life. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what, it's, it's like 400, 500 characters. I mean, it's insane. The depth of that, you know, but, um, Tolkien is my favorite. Um, C.S. Lewis being another, but you know, I never really delved too much further than those two, honestly. But you were talking about reading a pretty hefty book here recently that was kind of in that mode, right? 
1400 pages or 1500 pages yes so uh i had just finished it uh, it was the book fourth book in a series by an author brandon sanderson and all four of the books so far there's supposed to be 10 in the series when he's done but all four are over a thousand pages now how much how are you chunking that up is it one of those things where you dedicate like i'm going to read three chapters no matter how long that is i'm going to read three chapters today or do you just you know leisurely read through this thing because i have a real complex when i read i cannot put a book down until i'm done with it so i have to be very very selective about when i read how i read because it can also become something that's a negative you know i kind of tune everything else out and, and and forget so how do you balance that I think with um, with with that book, I was actually averaging roughly fifty pages per day reading. Okay. And I guess you would call it something like a complex or OCD, where I cannot stop reading. Like I prefer to when I take a break from reading a book, I prefer to it to be either the paragraph ends at the bottom of the page so the next page starts a brand new paragraph or or a chapter so yeah i either have to end on a chapter or the top of the page has to be the start of a fresh paragraph and that just lets me know you know helps me know where i was on the page sure do you like, like uh do you like like cia spy novel types at all I haven't read many of them. Um, if you were going to go into Jack Carr, sort of. I was okay. going to get there. That was going to be the that was going to be the tie that binds. But man, I found this guy. It was like oh two oh three. I found this author named Vince Flynn, and he had actually been investigated by I want to say it was the FBI because I think in ninety eight or ninety nine. Um, he wrote a book that actually detailed uh, a terrorist organization flying a plane into the White House and causing destruction, you know, causing destruction and trying to kidnap the president. So when September 11th happened, um, he was questioned pretty heavily for like, where did this idea stem from? Who have you been talking to? Because he, he's been on record. He, he passed away now, but. At the time, he had been on record saying that he had a lot of covert operatives and special forces and politicians that he was uh, talking to off the record, but was using some of their their information, kind of like changing the names and, and places to protect the innocent sort of deal. But they were trying to see if they had gotten any kind of information leak on him. But anyhow, his books, uh, the main character in those books, the guy's name was Mitch Rapp. And he was this college student, went to Syracuse, just a pretty much normal jock kind of guy. Um, something happened to someone very close to him. It sent him spiraling kind of down an alcoholic depression. And in the midst of all this, he was trying to plot some kind of revenge. He gets drafted by the CIA and it just, it follows like 10 or 12 books. And I was so fucking disappointed when they finally made a movie um, because, as you know, per usual, they just can't pack an entire book's worth into a movie. But um, 
they they produced the movie out of line. It's American Assassin. I don't know if you ever saw that, but they've, no, had, a team, they've had a team continuing to write books around Mitch Rapp and so on and so forth. And they've never been the same since he passed away. But if, if you ever wanted to get into a series of books, and to be honest with you, I have got three of Jack's books, but I have not torn into them yet because I don't have them in successive order. I just got a couple that um, Bert got a few copies of some and then I got and Jack gave me a copy of one of attack event. So I'm eager to, to read his stuff because I like Jack a lot. He's he's a really, really interesting, humble, gracious human being. I mean, meeting him was like, it was so refreshing because he's exactly who he appears to be. You know, just very, very interesting, very, very interested in talking to other people, asking everyone around him questions. And the dude's memory is unbelievable. I've never seen memory recall on anybody like what he's got. But, yeah. Go ahead. He, he just showed up on my radar um, probably within the last year for sure. And I ordered – and I ha- I'm sitting looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Uh, the first book, The Terminal List. Yep. And so I'll, uh, I'll get around to reading that and hopefully move on to the other books in the series. Yeah. Because every, everybody talks about it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's – it's interesting. So even though I'm getting more into the outdoors and, you know, survival, self-sufficiency, um, protection and self-defense, mm-hmm. I still, for some reason in my mind, have this aversion to the complex of, oh, he's, he's a, you know, a gun nut or, or uh, a militaristic, uh, uh, kind yeah. of person. So, even though I under I know deep down inside that no, that's not what it is. It's just in the past I've always gone. I've heard people talk about that and go, yeah, you know, sure they're they might be crazy, but anybody else that's obsessed about or highly interested, I should say, because obsession has a negative connotation in most places, but uh, a and um a deep passion for something they, they can seem kind of quote unquote crazy about it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to send you the first book of that Vince Flynn series. And, uh, if you read it, great. If not, you've got a good book sitting on your shelf for some rainy day, but I think, <laughs> I, I think you would enjoy it. Um, just because it really is to me, the thing that I liked about it was a guy who just an average Joe, who wanted to make a difference and then kind of like goes through the trials and tribulations of the reason he started versus the reason he continues, you know, mm-hmm. how that, how that kind of transitions and changes. And I don't know, I just really, really appreciate good character development in the way that I would, uh, anybody listening to this hasn't read Vince Flynn. I would kind of say it's Tom Clancy, um, edited as far as, you know, Clancy will write a thousand pages of just like this unbelievably deep character development, unbelievably deep descriptive stuff, which that's great. Um, but you can, you can also condense that down to a little bit more of a streamlined story with a little more action in between. And that's what I like about those books is, is really they're 400, 450 pages and, you know, when I started reading them, I was at the beach and I read two in three days. So 
you know, they're, they're really quick reads. And that's the thing that I like about them, just high intensity, high energy, lots of realistic kind of translatable information relative to things that have happened in the world in our lifetime. Um, a lot of terrorist stuff, a lot of Middle East stuff, but just an average dude trying to figure it all out. And I think that's the, the storyline underneath it all is, you know, that's, that's really all of us. We're just trying to figure it out. And again, to our next point, you know, I want to ask you straight out. I don't necessarily want you to pick apart yourself, but if you were to give somebody five steps to self-improvement, what would they be? Or what do you kind of model around? You know, I use the saying of, I do five, I give gratitude for five things from yesterday, super small things, super insignificant things. Um, like having a really, really good T-bone steak last night was one. Getting to try a really amazing hot sauce was another. Getting to talk with an old friend uh, at the post office was another. Just little things like that. I want to learn something new, whether it's a, a letter. I mean, I mean, sorry, reading an article, watching a movie uh, or a documentary or reading a book or something along those lines and helping a stranger. Those three things are like immediate attainable steps to self-improvement because one, you're giving gratitude to yesterday. One, you're expanding on yourself today and two, you're helping someone else, you know, or three, you're helping someone else. (laughs) But, But you know, if you had to wind me out five things that you would recommend to somebody. Ooh. So, you know, immediately the things that come to mind are the things that you can you can actually control for yourself. Things that you're doing for yourself. So, one, have you have you actually done any type of movement that day? Um, whatever kind, whatever it may be, whether you went for a walk, a run, um, you could control that because if, if if you're saying you're you're out of shape or you wish you could be in shape, if you're not moving in some capacity each day. You're not helping yourself. Right. Uh, to go along with that is, well, again, food. What food are you putting in you into your body? Did you just feel that you didn't have time, so you went through the drive-through of McDonald's or your favorite fast food restaurant, and that's what you ate that day, or did you go to the grocery store and get you just you know raw meat? raw vegetables and some kind of uh, grain or or potato, you know, it's like these are very simple things that you could do that would be better than eating fast food. So it's like, one, are you moving? Two, are you making better decisions about your food? Um, Now, there may be a caveat to the food thing, um, or or people like to, to use, well, I don't have the money to buy that. Well, <laughs> I think I think it's cheaper to go grocery shopping than it is to eat out at a restaurant every meal, even if it's fast food. You know, that's one thing that it drives me crazy because um, there's those center cut sirloin steaks, right? And here at, at Meyer, you can get four of those for twelve to fifteen bucks any given day of the week. And I'm telling you right now, my dad's. He, he's not a cattleman. I mean, he, he knows a steak, but he's not somebody that can like easily identify the nuances of steak. Like he knows a ribeye from a New York strip, but those little center cut sirloins, they, they look somewhat like a filet mignon, right? So mm-hmm. 
I, I slow cooked these things on the on the Traeger. I kind of smoked them a little bit, and then I, I hit them in the cast iron for a good sear. Well, this thing was like fall apart delicious. Um, it's a third of the cost of the filet mignon, and it was absolutely fantastic and fed four people a steak, um, you know, like an eight-hour ounce steak each or a seven ounce steak each for around four bucks a person throw in some asparagus which you can buy a bundle for three or four bucks and throw in a piece of fruit or a sweet potato and i mean you're talking about a seven dollar eight dollar meal per person you know you can feed a family for 32 bucks and i'll be honest i went to fucking sonic got my son and uh, a couple of his friends just a meal and drinks, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, I want to say it was three, I want to say it was three double cheeseburger meals um, with, you know, French fries or whatever. And I think one of them got like a, a strawberry limeade and the other two got like a diet Sprite or something. Not great. Not a, not a perfect healthy choice. But when you have five baseball games a week, you're going to have loopholes in it, you know. And uh, so anyway, that son of a bitch was $31. Like I was, I could not believe that three fast food meals was $30, you know. And I mean, it's not like I'm ignorant to those things, but it just blows my mind when people say that shit. Like, oh, it's so, it's so much more expensive to eat healthy. No, it's not. No, it is absolutely not. I can prove you wrong every single way coming or going. You can go buy a whole chicken for five bucks cooked on the rotisserie at Walmart, Meyer, Kroger, Whole Foods, wherever. You know what I mean? Like, and that should be more or less two meals for somebody, maybe more if you're a small person. Correct. Correct. So it's like, I don't know know that it's actually people saying that, oh, it's, it's too expensive. It's just that most people don't want to take the time and effort to, to procure those things, go to the store and get them and do the things to prepare them in a way that they taste better than fast food. Like there's, you see the way I cook. I see the way that you cook. There's no way that a, that a fast food meal is out, is ever going to outpace either of our flavor. Absolutely you know? not. And, and when you cook at home, so, you know, for, for that same amount that you spend, you're going to have more nutrient dense food and it will actually make you feel fuller well that's the thing man and feel, <laughs> and feel better not only feel fuller but feel better and you know i read something one time it's been pretty recently and i mean obviously you know this i know this but when it was worded this way it just kind of clicked even heavier was that if you eat food and immediately get tired everything that you ate was horrible for you you know what I mean? Because your body has to slow itself down so far and make you sleepy so it can process that shit out of you. You know, that's that's ultimately what it's doing when it when it takes in something that it views as so toxic that it wants to get rid of it. It just puts you to sleep. Um, I, I know that's kind of a layman's term of saying or way of saying it, but it really is amazing how when you eat a good quality meal, you don't feel bogged down. You actually feel more energy, more energetic and, and lighter. Um, that's one of the things I've found with raw milk after all the years of, uh, of, of antibiotics and whatnot that I went through with my knee surgeries four years, basically just trash in my gut with medicine. I had to really start over with very, very bland foods and work my way out. 
milk has been something that I've never been really able to, to get back on track with. If I drink it, I immediately feel bloated. I immediately get tired. Well, a friend of mine, he runs a nutrition store here, and they carry raw milk and raw yogurt and so on and so forth. And Kentucky has a law that you can buy shares of a cow that officially or essentially make you an owner of, that, mm-hmm. of, of said cow which makes any consumption of that cow, whether it's meat, whether it's dairy, whatever, uh, perfectly legal. So Kentucky has a few workarounds for that stuff. You still have to find a place like Nutrition Center in Richmond that can facilitate for you. But still, it's it's pretty interesting to me how the homogenization and the pasteurization process really do damage the quality of milk in, in our gut and our ability to process it. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I wanted to ask you, um, so you, you mentioned you know, feeling tired after eating. You know, we got off on a tangent on this food thing, but uh, <laughs> you, you, you mentioned, happens. yeah, totally, or, organic conversation. So you mentioned if you get tired after eating food, it was everything, uh, most of that food was, was terrible for you uh, nutrition-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think back to my some of my powerlifting meets and the first few where I was poor, poorly misguided, um, not by any particular fault except for the culture around powerlifting where you go way in the day before the meet. And then once you leave the weigh-ins, you just go eat whatever you want that day. Right. Um, so that was the first few ones. And then towards the, the last few that I did, I, I didn't do that, but I actually tracked and um, tracked what I ate after my weigh-ins and the day of, and I saved my eat whatever I want for after the meet. So I basically, after weigh-ins and the day of in between lifts, I ate more of the same foods that I was during prep. So if I was eating chicken and rice during prep, then after weigh-ins, I might have doubled my portion of rice right. at each meal. So I was I was eating more calories, but it was more of the same food. Uh, one, so I didn't feel like, you know, the, the first time I, I, I had a meat, I weighed in, and then I went left, and I tried to eat a whole pizza, a whole cheese stick, and a whole, like, cookie pizza dessert. And, like... I got towards the end of it, I was, and I was like, man, I can't eat anymore, but I need to eat this. And I felt terrible, just like, I wasn't even tired yet. I just felt terrible trying to get through this food. And now that I think about it, it's like, why, why was I doing that? So my question to you is, whenever you were um, doing your meats, did you ever get to that point? Uh, or, or what did you do with your with your food intake after weigh-ins and um, the day of the meat? Well, so in the beginning, I was much like like what you said. And, and I like it. There was, a, there was an article by J.M. Blakely. Uh, it was either by J.M. Blakely and Dave Tate referenced it or Dave Tate wrote an article referencing J.M. Blakely but talking about gaining weight and eating pizza and pouring olive oil all over the pizza and all this other stuff. And I believe that. Like I, I truly believe if you want to gain weight, it's you gotta put the fork in your mouth. You've gotta eat the food and the calories. And to be ultimately strong, you need to have a high level of sodium, you need to have a high level of hydration. Sodium helps the water get whipped into the muscles. 
when you're just a poor young power lifter trying to make it work shit extra value meals that's the way to go you know get a bunch of double cheeseburgers get a bunch of french fries and just pound them all day long but as i got that was more in the geared lifting days you know because that was that was a little bit more sex drugs rock and roll kind of approach to to the sport um but when i went raw you know, I was I was working with Chad Smith at Juggernaut, and I was working with uh, a lot of different. I don't want to I don't want to sound like I don't put Louie in a class. He's the coach at Westside. I don't want to say I put him in a class of coaches that aren't valid and respected. But he's also the kind of coach that is very valid, very respected, but will just tell you to hit the fucking door. You know, like I don't have to share my information with you if I want. I don't want to. Or I, I will share everything I have that I can. But where Chad was more of like a deep science approach at all times. Um, other people that I talked to were like a deep science approach at all times. So I began to look at my my training a little bit more scientifically, my diet a little bit more scientifically. And I think if you look at 2012 and prior, it was the struggling young powerlifter trying to make a name for myself just trying to get calories any way that I possibly could. Um, and then after 2012, when I started to take myself a little more serious as an athlete, uh, you know, I had that two year window before my injury where I was winning a lot of meats. I was lifting really, really heavy and making progress. The majority of my diet switched to whole foods, meat sources, eggs, rice. I did the Ronnie Coleman breakfast, which was, um, a cup of egg whites, five eggs, two cups of, or, you know, it was two cups cooked of white rice and then some bacon bits and cheese melted all together in a bowl and served around with some hot sauce. I would eat that every morning. My next meal would be something along the lines of a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then lunch would be, you know, chicken and vegetables and rice. Have another couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with milk um, after the, after that, and then I would go train. Well, the reason I was doing the milk before my training, as I told you, it bloated me and made me sick feeling. But that bloat, especially when you're trying to be maximally strong, tightens the belt up, makes a little bit more of a cushion to push off your legs and adductors uh, in a squat or a deadlift or a bench press. It allows you to reach a little bit higher. I mean, I was fucking massive. You know, I was 330 pounds and you know, like my friend, he's a doctor friend of mine said, I don't care how healthy you are. You're 330 pounds. You are not healthy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, but to, to your question more directly, um, what I would do is I would either find like a, a Thai restaurant or a hibachi place and I would go in and I would order two to three meals the, the, like for after my weigh in. So, you know, weigh-ins were usually 9 or 10 a.m. I would drink, you know, 32-ounce uh, Gatorade bottle, which was one-third Gatorade, one-third water, and one-third Pedialyte. I'd put a ton of salt in there or a bounce back, which was a horse electrolyte that you get at Tractor Supply. So what I was trying to do was not only saturate my body, but to take things like glycerin or glycerol, which when you drink that, it actually helps wick the the water from the stomach into the, the muscles. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a better way. Like a hydrated muscle muscle is a high performing muscle. I'm actually, I was messaging Craig Gunrow uh, from the group about his deadlift. And 
I shared with him an article and it was on sprinters, I think, but a 2% dehydration rate would, would be a 10% decrease in sprint performance. So it was always super imperative for us to hydrate first and foremost. But then at about 11 or 12 o'clock, I would go buy two or three of those hibachis and take them back to my room um, and basically just gorge myself. And then the last thing I would do before bed was I would eat uh, four to six Nutty Buddies, you know, the, the little Debbie snake. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it was just – it was all around the belief and understanding that mass moves mass. Well, I never let me, ask you, let me ask you about the Nutty Buddies. Did you just – take a big bite of them or did you peel the layers apart and eat the layers one by one so i am 100 percent fat kid i would you know it was the the two of them the two sticks in there i would peel the label back and i would bite i would squeeze them together so it was one plastic still around <laughs> the bottom and i would just eat them like it was one brick i didn't eat them like it was i didn't eat it like twix or you take one out um and eat it and then eat the other one literally like plastic still around the bottom squeezing and just eating that thing like a brick um but i love those things and the day of the meat i started to do a little bit better um one of the things that i would do is get up at six o'clock in the morning i would go to um, mcdonald's i liked their coffee at the time I, i'm not really delved into the world of coffee at that point and, and sometimes to this day still there's one mcdonald's here in town that i will argue with anybody has some of the best coffee I've ever had, but the other one here in town just makes brown water. So <laughs> I would go there and I would get a coffee and I would get a, a sausage, egg and cheese McGriddle. And I would eat that at about six o'clock in the morning, high calorie, high fat, a little bit of protein. And that would pretty much satisfy me. And I wouldn't really get nerves in the sense of like, performance nerves, but just the anticipatory nerves, the, the idea that I'm going to be competing soon and I'm excited for that. So I didn't really eat again until I started warming up and then I would have apples and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches um, as my go-tos. I really like that, that combo for me. It just seemed to, to be light and energizing. If I felt not necessarily hypoglycemic, but just kind of uh, tired or fatigued, and wanted something quick, I would keep a few Snickers or granola bars as well. Honey was always in my cooler. But, you know, much like you, I, I didn't want to go into the meat uh, eating a bunch of shit the day before and then spend the whole day, like, shitting my guts out in the restroom. Like, you saw that powerlifting meat. Like, oh, yeah. A, a men's bathroom and a powerlifting meat is, like, the most vile, disgusting-smelling <laughs> thing you could ever imagine in your life. But, um those hibachi type meals, you know, you're getting chicken or beef with vegetables with a little bit of teriyaki or soy sauce over a fried rice, you know, nothing really, really bad there. Probably a little, you know, too many calories for somebody truly dieting, but from the standpoint of quality nutrients, I was still getting a pretty good, pretty good dose of good food there, but anymore, um, I, I just, I don't, I don't enjoy fast food. Ultimately, I have to. I'm, I'm human, and I have to rely on it sometimes when I'm out on the road or get unexpected places that I need to go in a hurry. Um, I do a pretty good job of prepping my meals, although I do like to cook kind of as I go. Um, cooking is somewhat therapeutic for me, and it allows me like a creative or artistic expression at some level. So, yeah, man, I so much has changed for me, like. 
even talking about the powerlifting stuff, it's funny the memory recall on it because as I slowly start to talk about it a little bit more, you know, things that I'd completely forgotten come back. But for years, I didn't really talk about my powerlifting. Um, I think it was just like a sore subject for me and something that I was, I wasn't proud of all the things that I did and I felt like I could, could have done more. So I just tried to block it out, but slowly making peace with all that stuff now and feeling more or less proud about the things that I did accomplish, you know, cause when I started, I remember thinking that 2000 pounds in a multiply suit, um, would be like, that would be the moon for me, you know, and getting to a point where I was within 70 or 80 pounds of the world record at the time in multiply gear. Uh, when I was a 308, I totaled 2530. And I think the record at West side was 2610 or 2620 or something like that. Um, so I was pretty close. I ended up totaling 2612 at, at, at a later date, but I just look back on those days and can't hardly believe that it was me that did those things, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's, it's good that you're, you're getting back to a point where it's not such a, a sore topic for you because you know, it is, it is a huge block of how you got to where you are today. I mean, equivalent, you know, if you were to ration it out by the, Lifetime. I mean, it's roughly 50% of my life I spent pursuing maximum strength, whether it's for strongman or powerlifting, you know, and it's, it's a weird thing to have a, a, such a odd relationship with something that's such a big part of your life. And I can remember at times being able to quote all the women's records, you know, top 10 from 114 up all the men's records from, you know, 123 up and just knowing who those record holders were, knowing who the top lifters were, knowing all that stuff. And, you know, obviously the internet and social media have exploded. Um, and there are people who are better marketers than they are lifters, but they're still really quality type lifters. Um, so you see those type of names more often than you see some of the, you know, quote unquote gorillas in the mist, like a guy like Vlad Alhazov, one of the strongest men to ever walk the planet, but he's not a, he's not an internet guy. You know, he posts some stuff here and there, but you're not going to see daily training videos. You're not going to see, um, all his competition videos put on display like Peter Petrus. Peter Petrus is a dude that competes like every seven or eight years and sets the all time world record, then goes back into hiding. He's just this massive human that I love to follow because he's just, he's a freak, uh, in his own way and he doesn't put it on display. So it's, it's hard for me to keep up with it. Um, just because my interests aren't necessarily in that direction. So it's kind of like, I have to stop all the things that I'm interested in focused on and, and delve back into it a little bit, um, here and there. And there's, there's a few guys that I follow like Dan Bell. I competed with him and he's doing amazing things. John hack, um, Dan Green, I'll always follow him. You know, just guys that were in and around the time when I was lifting uh, that are still going on, and I'm so much respect for that. But man, I'm just excited about jujitsu. I'm excited about hiking, camping, hunting. I've got too much emphasis, excitement, and focus on on those things to really spend much time looking back. But like you said, I think it's it's important for me to get to a place where I can look at the things that I accomplished and, and be proud of those. Even if I'm not proud of the 
human being that I always was during those times, you know? And I think yeah. that's why, I think that's why I, I kind of shied away from that stuff because I just didn't like who I was. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I forget who said this. Um, so it was, it didn't come from my brain, but, uh, somebody once told me you, you can't hate the, you know, if you, if you, if you view your old self as a dumbass, you shouldn't hate that dumbass because somewhere, somehow, that dumbass got you to where you are today. Oh, for sure, man. And, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, I wouldn't be working. I would have never, I would have never spoken at Sornex for the first time without powerlifting. I would have never met Bert and never would have gotten the job and the opportunities and all the experiences that I have. I mean, powerlifting took me around the world. You know, I've been to Tasmania, I've been to Australia, I've been to Finland, I've been to all over Europe, I've been in, in Finland, Iceland, England, uh, Spain, Portugal, France, Germany. You know, all because of all because of this thing that I was reasonably good at. I, I still reserve the fact that I was highly competitive for my time, and I won a lot of things, but I don't hold myself in the same regard as someone like Dan, you know, um, Dan green is about as high a level lifters. I think you can get, he's done it all the right way. He's been a business owner. He's been a family man. He's had injuries. He's trained against impossible odds and just continued to hit world records, continue to elevate the sport. So if you were to ask me for my time range, who I really admire the most and, and would point people to as an example of what just, grit and determination can do it'd be Dan and Dan was you know Dan and Sparkle and I we had we had some headbutting throughout our careers mostly misunderstandings and, and probably me being overzealous about some things but those two were really pivotal in I'll say loving me despite my faults you know the reason that we butted heads is because they were they were encouraging me to do better you know and fix things about myself and they really do care about me because I, I talked to Sparkle on her birthday the other day, just very briefly, but it's nice to, to get a message back and say like, Hey, we can't wait to see you out here again. We miss you. Can't wait for you to meet our, our babies and things like that. You know, it's, it's just, just nice to repair relationships that were once fractured, especially when you care about those people, you know? Yeah. Hey, I want to go back to, um, so I, I listed two things that I would recommend people do to better themselves, which were get movement and better food. Mm -hmm. um, I would also add to that list. I don't think I can get to five, but I can definitely get to four, okay. which is um, connect with another human being. Yes. Every day. It doesn't have to be deep, but, you know, connect with somebody because humans are, are, are pack animals. We're, we're, we're tribal by nature. We're not meant to be alone. So if you're not connecting with anybody, you're not going to improve yourself. And then the fourth thing I would say is just like you learn something. Mm -hmm. If if you go a day where you haven't learned something, anything, and it doesn't even have to be big, your growth that day there was no growth. It's, 
Right. Learning is growth, whether whether it be knowledge or um, whether whether you realize you learn something or not. Because you know, an example of learning something where you may not have actually realized you learned something is if you went out and you did training. You went out and did physical training and you actually got better at at it. Like your form improved, but you might not have internalized it in your mind. Your mm-hmm. body your body still learned how to move better. So Oh yeah. Well I think that's important too. I mean I think that so many people um they really go through these modes. <sighs> I don't know. I I just, I think people have gotten so busy in just maintaining and and doing the best that they can that sometimes they forget progression. And like I said, it doesn't have to be earth shattering, you know, advancement for for me, um, listening to a podcast or reading an interesting article or, you know, just anything. Um, I think there's so much free content out there. I mean, YouTube is like, plethora of, of opportunities to, to really just investigate whatever you're interested in. I mean, no matter what you're into, um, if it's legal, you know, there's probably a video of some sort that can expand your knowledge and comprehension on YouTube. You know, that's one of the things that I do a lot of, especially with jujitsu is, is watching these guys and their technique and hearing their philosophy on it. Because for me, kind of like in the same realm of the the board game you were talking about, um, there's a really great quote by an awesome, like he's probably considered the leading coach in jujitsu today. His name is John Danaher. And the cool thing about, Jiu-jitsu is I remember a chess master saying something along the same lines. There's always a counter move to victory, you know, and Danaher says, no matter where you are in jiu-jitsu, no matter how bad or how deep the position, you're always three moves from victory. If you know those moves and if you can force your will on your opponent. So that's one of the things that I try to remember about life too. Um, no matter how bad or how down I seem to get, there's usually just a couple of things away from making a day a really good day. And like you said, human interaction. Um, last week I was pretty, you know, I was pretty off just feeling all kinds of noise and stress on the peripheral from COVID and the politics and the never ending wheel of this side versus that side and blah, blah, blah. But I ended up having some really awesome conversations. You know, we had a good conversation, um, had a good conversation with Casey, had a really good conversation with a couple other guys as well. And, uh, none of them were about COVID. None of them were about anything going on in the political spectrum. And I think that we need those conversations, not only to remind us that that's not the only shit that's happening in the world, but also, just to kind of like debrief and, and get a new ground on where we are and move forward from that, you know? Absolutely. So we got a couple more topics here. <laughs> um, one I want to say for the last, cause I know you're excited to talk about it, but bourbon, I was talking to uh, Logan Hanks about bourbon on, on his podcast 
And that guy, he's really kind of become a, a good friend of mine and somebody that I trust and respect. Um, and he always, like, he is a one poor guy. And what I mean by that is you cannot twist his arm and make him have a second drink. You can't make him pour more than he wants to pour. He just likes to really sit and savor a single glass of bourbon. And if you're wanting to get really white boy wasted, what is your go-to drink? What is your go-to bourbon? And if you really want to enjoy something or savor something, what is your go-to bourbon? So one, I don't think, well, yeah, I've never been white girl wasted in my life on, on any type of <laughs> alcohol. Uh, some may call me a liar, but I have never actually gotten alcohol poisoning or uh, thrown up, puked from drinking too much. Um, something, something about me being trusting my body when it's like, hey, uh, you probably should slow down. Um, but that being said, the closest I ever got was uh, a few years ago, my wife and I went to a Mardi Gras ball. And it was the first and only one I've been to. And these things are bougie as hell. So you've got to pay something, I think like $500 at least for the cheaper Mardi Gras balls. You have to pay $500 per person just to go to it. And on top of that, it's a, um, a tux affair. So for, for, for men, you've got to rent and wear a tuxedo unless you own a tuxedo. Women have to wear ball gowns. Um, you get nothing with your ticket except entry into the ball where the ball is indoors usually and it's inside of a building where the parade floats can drive through. So mm -hmm. they'll drive through and the parade floats actually uh, save most of the expensive and awesome beads and throws and, and goodies for the people at the ball. So you actually get some nice throws from, uh, from, from them. But most of the time you can, unless it's like the named items from, from whatever parade it is, you can usually go to the party store and buy that with your own money if you really wanted it. Um, but you have to buy your own food. You have to buy your own drinks, uh, liquor, beer, soft drinks, whatever it is you want. So you have to buy all of that. You have to buy and decorate your table at the ball. Um, so I probably won't be doing this again because <laughs> for two people, you end up spending probably about – depending on how much food and, and drinks you buy, you could spend up to $1,200, $1,500. Actually, more than that because the tickets alone are 1000 Yeah. So you're looking at something over over $2,000 for one night of debauchery. Sure. Um, but that, that, that night, just to get back to the bourbon, um, that day I had gone to the liquor store and I, I found a Henry McKenna – I think it was. Oh, okay. Beer. That's what I'm drinking. I got. I got a bottle of it right here. 
Yeah, I'm drinking and, it right now, but I got a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was the first time I saw that, and I think it was either the first or second year that they released it, mm-hmm. and it was thirty four dollars for a bottle. And so I was like, okay, I'll try this because it said bottled in bond, and I was like, oh, cool. So I bought it, and then. Probably around 9.30 that night. Keep in mind, the ball started at 7.30 or 8 Mm o'clock. Around 9.30, I go to pour myself another drink, and I grab the bottle, and like 80% of it is gone. And I go to my wife. I said, hey, how much have you drank of this? She looks at me. She goes, I haven't even touched that yet. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I drank eighty percent of of that bottle of that bourbon, <laughs> and I'm, and you did and you didn't get hammered. Oh, uh, I I did not drink any more for the rest of the night, and I was, you know, I was drunk, but I wasn't having any more to drink. Like if I if I actually drank any more alcohol that night, I probably either would have blacked out or puked or both but I went the next three or four hours still just like real real loosey goosey tipsy fun I didn't need another drink and it it was crazy but (laughs) um, I haven't found Henry McKenna around here since then Uh, but that was some good bourbon yeah I do enjoy that one a lot Right now, I'm sitting here looking at, at three bottles that I I have five different bottles on hand right now. But the the three that I'm I'm really enjoying right now are um, a sugar it's a Sugarfield brand uh, bourbon, and that's actually a, a Louisiana a bourbon. Is that the one you sent me? Yeah, that is the one that sent you. That's what I thought. Yeah. And what I think what I think they do is they. After they, because they can't add anything in the the uh, the distilling process, or mm-hmm. it ceases to be bourbon. But they can they can condition it afterwards. And what I think they do, because we we talked about this briefly, that there's something else in there. I'm pretty sure they probably condition it on some sugar cane, because mm-hmm. it's got a little bit of a different taste than some some other bourbons it's, it's got like a little sweetness you know that's one that's one uh do you drink it over ice or do you drink it straight um i've had both i can't i can't recall the, the difference in the notes right now mm-hmm. so that's one that i've actually been pouring when I drink it and it's almost gone right now. And at first I was kind of the same way. I was like, this is a little different, but not like it wasn't bad, but it was just different. Um, and I had it over ice and I think I just diluted it too much. Like I did, you know, I just poured some ice in there. I wasn't really like trying to calculate, but when I do it now, I'll just take one regular freezer ice cube and put it in there with like a double pour or what I really like to do with that one is just throw the bottle in the refrigerator for like 10 minutes, just enough to kind of like, and especially where there's not much in there now, you know, 10 minutes in there goes a long way. 
but it just brings the temperature down below room temperature a little bit and pour like a single shot and just sip that straight. That one's really been pleasant for me. Uh, one that I, I've actually gone back to it a lot more than the others I have right now. Um, sound like I drink all the time, but I, I you know, I'm kind of like the, the same realm as Logan is because I'm trying to get leaner because I'm trying to push my conditioning and my, all that kind of stuff. I really haven't been drinking that much, but two to three nights a week, I'll have a single pour of something. Um, in the last week or so, I finished a four rows of small batch, which I love. I picked up a bottle of Blanton's. I've got a couple of bottles of Booker's and the McKenna Buffalo trace is my go-to though. That's the one that I prefer to just, you know, it's always around it's, 25 to 35 bucks depending on the liquor store around here and that's the one i feel like if, if somebody asked me like hey what's a bourbon that you recommend that just kind of encompasses what bourbon is about i feel like that one's kind of a middle of the road you know it's not a really high proof it's not anything else besides just a good solid middle of the road bourbon so yeah. that's that's, pro- that's probably one that i grab the most um i gift it you know, when I go to somebody's house or something, I, I take them some of that. But um, are you a bullet guy at all? I've had bullet um, before. I've had the bullet rye and, and just the uh, bullet bourbon. Mm-hmm. And they're okay. I haven't bought them in a while. Yeah. Well, I like uh, I like the rye better than, than the regular. Now, the 10-year bullet, I'm going to highly recommend to you. I think that's it's, – it's like a tan or a khaki label. So the regular's orange, the, the rye is green, and then they have that tenure that's kind of a, a little bit different. If I was gonna put money on that for you, I would I would say get the tenure. But I'm gonna send you a bottle. Are you you drink wine much? Yes, I, I love I, I love drinking wine. Uh, wine, bourbon, and uh, craft beers are yeah. my three phases with alcohol. So I like finding good recommendations of beer like if somebody's like man this is really good um big truck stout by the way shout out to those guys it's freaking phenomenal how good it is lots of chocolate notes lots of uh just really good flavors i've been really impressed with big truck overall but i'm not a guy that goes into to a brewery and ever picks the right one like i end up (laughs) (laughs) i end up getting the worst tasting shit so um i'm a bud light guy you know, as far as beer go, I don't typically drink a ton of beer. Um, I'm usually like a three to a six pack kind of thing. You know, I drink a beer an hour or something if I watch a fight <laughs> or whatever. But um, I've had some good beers. Uh, the tin roof that you sent me from Louisiana was good. You remember the white can that you sent? It's kind of like a Mardi Gras. Oh. Since you a couple, a was it was it the voodoo? Yeah, I think it was. It had like a skull. Well, the voodoo ranger I've had more of, but this was a tin roof. It was white. The can was white with like green, yellow, and purple confetti on it or something. But nevertheless, it. Uh, I like that stuff. You know, it's just I got to be real selective with it because. Some of the some of the pale ales and stuff like that they just get too much for me, but it's good, no complaints. Yeah, so you mentioned four roses, small batch. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife, my wife actually got me a a, a a bottle of that for my birthday. 
and it's pretty good. It's got a little spice to it. And the other bourbon that I've actually been uh, drinking, and I drink the Four Roses on on uh, on an ice cube, so just a little bit chilled. Sure. But, but then the uh, the other bourbon I, I really enjoy is Wyoming whiskey bourbon. Oh yeah, Robin. <laughs> yeah. And so he he's he actually tried to mail me a bottle a couple of times, and then they wouldn't let him ship out alcohol. I was like, oh okay, well. But I actually found it at the liquor store near me, so I bought a bottle of that. And I know I know Logan doesn't like. Uh, smooth beer, uh, not smooth beers, smooth bourbons. He likes a burn. He likes a burn, but this Wyoming, it's it's like really smooth. I can drink it, um, drink it neat, mm-hmm. and it and it goes down like 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 candy. Yeah, <laughs> I drink. Uh, there's there's a bourbon called Redemption. I don't know. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I had some the other day. It was 105 proof. Um, but really, really like caught me off guard how smooth it was. It was really, uh, trying to find the the bottle here. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's in the same price range as Buffalo trace, but it's called uh, redemption straight bourbon whiskey and it's weeded. So I don't know, 75% corn, 21% rye and 4% barley. Have you ever had angels? Have you ever had angels envy? No, I have not. Okay, so along the lines of the the sugar field that you talked about, they actually transfer from a a bourbon barrel to a port wine barrel for for a period after the the casking is done. Mm -hmm. So they pour it in a port wine um, for just like right before they bottle it, and I think it sits in there for a little while. I don't know how long, but. I'll have to find you some Angels Envy and send that down. But back to the wine, um, Andy from Half Face Blades. I don't know if he's involved uh, financially or if he's just supportive of the Lucier Wine Company. They're the ones I've posted a few times. Has a pig hanging on it. Uh-huh. It's a real. It's a really sweet light red. Um, they're they're starting to pump that stuff out. So I'm going to get you a bottle of that for sure. That's the one I want to send you right away. Cause I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's a Pinot Noir. Um, yeah. but, but super, super fruity. Um, you know, I don't, I don't mind a dry red wine, something kind of heavy, but this is like, I mean, it's, it's like adult Kool-Aid in the best way. I'm not saying it's like a sweet sugary wine, but it's just like, you just want to keep drinking it. So I've yet to open a bottle without finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) But granted, I have served it to other people as well. So it's not like I'm sitting there pounding a bottle, but even if I did, I wouldn't be mad. (laughs) (laughs) How how many, did, did you count how many times Logan said George T. Stagg? It was a lot. I noticed that quite a bit. I noticed that quite a bit. <laughs> he was excited about it, though, man. He, uh, I've had the, the stag, and I like it. Um, I just, I don't buy a whole lot of of premium bourbons. I mean, yeah, we talked about tr- that. Yeah, it's it's like I tr- I just uh, I get gifted 
a lot more premium bourbons, you know, like I, you know, clients or something that I have in person or coaches that I work with, they'll send me something here and there. Um, but yeah, for the most part, if I'm buying any bourbon, it's just Buffalo Trace. I'm easy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the one I wanted to talk to you about. Um, music is a huge, huge part of my life. And I know it's a, a subject change, but hell, we've already been going for an hour and a half, which is great. But I think I'm going to lose you. No, you're here. Oh, okay. Here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I saw the booty thing that came through. Um, that's what the, that's what that little sound was. <laughs> so we talked about bourbon. We talked about some self-improvement stuff. We talked about your greatest gains. Next, I want to talk about, and lastly, I just want to talk about your appreciation for, I, I said tool. Um, because I know you're a big tool fan, but you replied back this morning and said, Hey, let's make it about Maynard because not only is a member of tool, he's a singer of perfect circle, a perfect circle, and he's a lead singer of Pussifer. Um, and then also he's got a winery and he's doing all kinds of other crazy stuff. One of the coolest things I ever read about Maynard, and you might know more to this story than I do but he lived in a house at one point in time that was essentially like an overgrown tree house, like a full size house in a tree that was based around his favorite math equation. And there was a hole in the center of the floor that looked down to the floor of the forest because it was an unsolved equation. You ever heard I, that story? I have not heard that story, but it, it sounds like a story Maynard would would tell somebody. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Whether or not it's true, I don't think anybody would ever know. Right. Um, but I mean, it it sounds it it sounds in line with that because I mean he is. He is all about mathematical equations and um, most of, like, especially with Tool, most of the, the Tool songs it evolve around the, um, I think they call it the golden equation, where it's the, the, the circle that goes in on itself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it evolves, um, it's, it's highly related to fractals. But, yeah, Maynard in general, he's just... And I, I recently read his biography uh, earlier this year and learned a lot about him and his, his things, things you might not just think about him mm -hmm. um, because, you know, he is good at what he does and he does have a following. And one of, one of the biggest things I hear people uh, say about tool fans is, oh, you're just pretentious tool fan. You think you understand it all, and you know you've you've put Maynard on this pedestal or tool on this pedestal as a a be all end all musician or or band. Um, and maybe somebody will label me as that, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> I, I I appreciate the things that Maynard does. On, on on all fronts um like like you mentioned he does have a winery mm -hmm. and so he actually bought land so he he is of uh italian descent 
and he had gotten uh, went down the rabbit hole of learning more about his his ancestors and um, that went actually went to the house that his grandfather or great grandfather uh, owned in Italy grew up in in Italy and then ended up buying some land in Arizona and starting a, a vineyard there and so he actually grows all the grapes for his wines in Arizona and he names them after um, he names each of the blocks after things that are near and dear to him um, like like Judith and Marie which his mother's name is Judith Marie and so there's like a Judith block of blah 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 um, and I think he actually if I may be incorrect here I think he somewhere along the lines grows semolina wheat and ships mm-hmm. it and ships it to Italy where they use that to make pasta yep and so I knew he he was getting more into that too. There was something else he's doing. Is he is he doing a tomato sauce? Is he growing tomatoes for a sauce that he ships back to now? I would not be surprised. Uh, he he does own a restaurant somewhere in either Flagstaff or Jerome, mm-hmm. Arizona, and he serves. You know, I, I think most of it is farm to table type food. Um, or at least he knows exactly where the food is sourced from. It's not just from a food distributor. Because um, he's very – everything that he does, he's very particular and meticulous with. Um, but when, when – sorry. Well, trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go. Um but no, but back to his, his blah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go back to some of his other endeavors that aren't as well known, unless you've read his uh, biography. Uh, when he when he grew up, because he actually grew up on a farm or a garden farm, is is what what his house uh, as, as a young kid was, and then his parents got divorced, um, and so. When he was in high school, he was in track, and I think his his freshman year he had an awesome coach, and then the coach went off somewhere else. Um, I forget the reason why, but then the next year he was still in track, and they had a new coach, but the new coach was not as uh, influential and motivational, mm-hmm. and so he, being a sophomore, was actually one of the most senior and talented members on the track team. And he actually took it upon himself to act as, you know, a, a, a student coach. Okay. So he, he actually motivated his, his, his team to do good. Um, and so I never think of Maynard as an athlete, but he's also now into jujitsu. He's been into jujitsu for, for a while. Um, and there was, there's actually one clip you can go find on, on YouTube where a fan gets up on stage on a, in an old Tool concert. Mm-hmm. And instead of security coming over, Maynard just like knocks him down and then puts him in a chokehold. And, um, or the guy, I, I, I don't know the exact name on it, but the guy is actually 
uh, stomach down, face down on the floor, and he's sitting on his back, and he's got his um, his arms pulled back by uh, Maynard's legs, is holding his arms back, and he's like, gra- he's got one hand grabbing and pulling the, the dude's face up, so his face is in the ground, and he's still singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> And I, this is my was, favorite story so far. <laughs> he waves off the security guards and he finishes this song while sitting on top of this guy and holding him in some type of hold. Um, which, except for the guy probably going to jail afterwards, that would probably be the best seat in the house for a tool concert. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got choked out while, while he's saying stink fist. um but yeah he's he's been on rogan a couple of times and i don't know his reasoning but it's it's very well documented that he's you know it could be just purely for for his vocal cords but i don't i don't think he does any other type of um THC or, or, or marijuana, but he definitely uh, is against smoking it. Yeah, because uh, uh, <laughs> Rogan has pushed him a couple of times, and 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 some of his responses were, were kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I liked his episodes. I mean, he's obviously he's a he's a I don't know. I would say that he's a genius for sure. Um, or at the very, very least extremely high on the intellectual scale. And I think that he's brought that level of intrigue to his music. Like I said, I, I've always been more into uh, tool and then a little bit of a perfect circle. Never really, I, I've listened to Pistopher, but I never, you know, I've never delved into their catalog or anything like that. But, for me, music is so. I, I realize I'm very susceptible to music. You know what I mean? Um, I think I perpetuate my mood, and and maybe even change my mood based on on certain types of music. Like I was listening to a lot of, you know, Tyler Childers and a lot of Coulter Wall and the Wooks and that type of people. And a lot of those songs are downtrodden and and laced with heavy lyrical meaning and, and emotion and I think I lingered in that stuff for a while here lately you know coming out of winter um, I've been trying to listen to like rap and metal and all that kind of stuff and I'm training because before you know when I was working with Terrence and training with Terrence um, I was listening to a lot of reggae a lot of like I don't know what the word would be but uh, instrumental type stuff, powerful, but, but not necessarily in the same way of a metal song, you know, mm-hmm. but now that I have a competitive aspect to my training again, um, it's very, very difficult for me to feel the same things that I was feeling before. But do you feel that with music or do you just appreciate it from a lyrical level? Cause that was one of the things that I found interesting today. When you sent me those songs, you weren't like, just listen, you were like, definitely read the lyrics. So is it, I, is it more, is it more lyrically driven from from Maynard's work or is it more the music itself? I think it. I think for true, um, I don't want to sound elitist, but I think when the music and the lyrics 
combined bring about some type of you know conviction or, or feeling it's it's on a higher level and a higher plane mm-hmm. um i probably the first time i've experienced something like that was with uh, pink floyd's of the wall oh yeah like if you you can hear the anger and anguishment and and sorrow in a bunch of those songs um on the on Pink Floyd's The Wall. And I think Maynard his his lyrics, if you you know, a lot of them can be cryptic. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he doesn't want you to understand them exactly the way he does because art is interpreted, you know, art is meant to be interpreted by the person viewing it. And if if you are an artist and you get angry that somebody has like if you put something out into the world as an artist and you don't like specify, hey, this is exactly what this is and it is nothing else, and you get angry that somebody interpreted it differently than what you intended, then maybe you shouldn't put art out. Yeah. Or at least put out something that you consider to be art. Um, but I think so. He he likes a lot of satire in his music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays with cadence and, and and time signatures, especially with the, with Tool. Um, Pussifer itself, it, I don't know. There's times when in Tool where it's a more generic. Um. Ah, shit what's, what's the word uh, commentary of the world world yeah but I think Pussifer he has taken more um, more leeway with his own thoughts and commentary on the world with satire and I think a perfect circle is more I, if I had to label a perfect circle anything it would be more of a political I think they focus a little more on the political uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also not just his band. Uh, none of them are just his bands. Um, right. And he will say that. And, and you can actually witness that with if you see them play live. And it's interesting to see him perform back in the day where he was front and center like most lead singers are. But now he he's in the back of the stage usually with no lights on him and so everybody on stage has equal kind of it's like they are the group they are they they produced it all together without any one of them nothing would exist that they are performing well that's why it took so long in between albums right it was like you know they wanted to break after the last album i'm speaking of tool they wanted to break after the last album. They wanted to, you know, kind of meander in some individual projects. And then when they came together, there was some, not necessarily like bad blood, but just disagreement on the direction that they wanted to go. And then they eventually finally got it all together for the newest release. When was that? Two years ago now? Or was it last yeah. year? It yeah, two, two, years two years ago in October. And then it yeah. was what? It was it 10 years in between? Um... 
12? It was, 12, yeah, it was a long-ass time. Yeah, because I think 10,000 Days came out in 2007. But I think they were having issues with uh, the record label that they were with at the time. Yeah. So I think that was more of the issue with the recording as opposed to um, the members having differences. Because with the four members of Tool... Um, and I've heard all of them, uh, most of them talk about it is that on certain songs, certain songs are the, the child of a specific member where the, the structure of the song mm-hmm. came from one of the people, uh, from one of the band members. And they, they said, Hey, look, this is, this is an idea I want to run with. And then the others listen to that portion and then they think of okay how can i tie into this and right. then they they layer it on top of the layer it all together and it becomes one coherent thing um especially after editing and everything so um but no like the the two songs i, I sent to you to to listen you know one was gray area by Pussifer, which is on their newest album existential reckoning and you know your your comment was this is was very very re- relevant um, mm-hmm. to today. Let's see, yeah, hyper relevant to today. And and an interesting thing about that whole album is the use of the synthesizer and and the prominence of the synthesizer being uh, electrical and digital. And the commentary, the, the lyrical commentary is, is uh, especially with that song Gray Area that I sent, you know, the, the lyrics, nothing factual, nothing fictional, interchangeable. This is the, mm-hmm. uh, this is the age of confusion. And so it's like, okay. And then later on, it says ones are zeros, zeros, ones from now on out of tune in the phase. So there is no distinction between anything anymore. It's like, so no wonder there's confusion in the world. Um, nobody knows what to believe. Opposing people are putting out opposing ideas as, as the truth and that uh, each other person is wrong. So it's just kind of, and, and without, without the internet, or digital communication, the prevalence of that confusion and blurriness of fact and fiction would not be as prevalent. Yeah, yeah and, and that's one of the things that it's really interesting with me is it's like you know the, the internet is this ultimately powerful thing, inert without human influence to some degree, right? Um, it's like the old saying, well, if you're, if you're miserable on Instagram, it's because you allow yourself to, to follow miserable things. Um, it only loops back around what you search, you know, organically. So when I listened to that song and more so when I read the words, um, it really was kind of a, an interesting point when he said ones and zeros, zeros and ones like that line when and, and what he's referencing is code you know everything is, is this sequence and series of zeros and ones 
or ones and zeros, but it's so easy to just flip the protocol and disrupt everything. You know what I mean? Like if, if we misidentified what should be a one and put a zero, well, the pattern is still the same. The code is still the same number of digits, but it's totally wrong. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, in the world today is that we don't necessarily look at what's right any longer. And, and I don't know that the word right has a universal acceptance, but common decency and things like that are giving way to to other things. Kindness is giving way to belittlement. Um, kind of like what we talked about with powerlifting, you know, the best lifters aren't being recognized, but the best marketers are, you know, it, it's just a strange world when we're recognizing all these weird things. And it, this, this kind of takes me away from, from tool and Maynard a little bit, but, um, not necessarily in that there are people, there are musicians that are actually saying something that they have a purpose or a, a drive to be heard for some reason. And then there's other people that are just making beats that make people feel good, you know? And one, I would argue while it's good and it feels good and it, it might lighten the mood. Is it really doing anything other than distraction? And I'm talking like at the most literal terms, you know, is it, is it actually art or is it just this feel good thing? Um, because I, I would think that there's a difference in somebody who painted a masterpiece and somebody who just painted a watercolor. That's pretty terrible because it felt good. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I, I don't know, but man, we've, we've, we've rambled on and on here. Um, God, we're almost at hour and 45. Well, we are at an hour and 45 minutes. So, Anything else you want to close up with? Because, I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground. I enjoyed this conversation much more, not necessarily as a person interviewing you, but just as a conversation in general. I think this one was, is going to play much better than the last one, though, you. I, I definitely do. Um, I mean, witnessed by how long we went because we just we're just two guys talking and feeling good about it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's what I want this podcast to always be. I mean, there might be somebody that's got like, you know, some sense of, of recognition or, or quote unquote celebrity, but I typically want to keep it rooted in people that I consider friends and can have a two hour conversation with about a myriad of topics and none of it matters, but it all is important, you know? Yep. So let me ask you, you have one other thing on here and I'll, I'll ask you first and then I'll okay. answer. Cool. Um, I wrote two down, so I'll ask you, what are two goals you have for the next five years? So probably number one is, uh, to really solidify some, some financial moves. Um, the, the 10 years that I was powerlifting, I was just chaotic, reckless, not that I was blowing money, but I just wasn't making a lot of money. I wasn't, um, you know, I was spending money to make money. So it was like an ever evolving wheel and revolving door of money coming in, money going out to make money and then money coming in and then money going out to make money. So in the last five years, I've really, really been dedicated to some investments. I've really been dedicated to uh, trying to save some money and, and put it into things that I think will grow and 
somewhat diminish the, the recklessness. So number one, I think, is to continue to further my financial stability and have an acumen for cryptocurrency and, and stocks as well as real estate. Those are, those are three areas that I'm very, very interested in. Um, I, I hate putting that as one of my things, but it is one of the things that I really, really have some clear cut goals to do with my retirement, the way that I want to live the rest of my life out and so on. Um, I, I very much like Kentucky. I like the people here. I like the, the, the pace of life, but ultimately if you're talking big dreams, it's probably more like eight to nine years away. But ultimately I would like to have, um, two residents, one kind of like, you know, four months out of the year, the rest of it, uh, elsewhere and traveling. But I'm looking at a mountain house, someplace that I can, you know, really call my home base. I like North Carolina for the, the reasons that it's a few hours from the ocean. It's also a few hours from home. I really prefer the Western mountains and, and that landscape. But I also know that those areas, the population's booming, the, the cost of, of living is outrageous out there right now. So if it means maybe retreating a little bit into the hills of Kentucky a little further and having a place that's a little quieter, I would wrap all that up to it. Like, actualizing that dream of having the, the cabin in the mountains with the savings to allow me to do so. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm pretty close, but I just need some time and I need to make a couple good decisions here in the next three to five years to actualize those things. Um, beyond that, uh, and again, it's, it's longer than five years, but it's part of the path. You know, I think in five years, I would like to, to have achieved at least, um, my purple belt in jujitsu and potentially be, be staring down the possibility to be a brown belt. But I think that I have determined through the ups and downs, the rise and falls of my psychology, I am better when I have an active measure of skill that I can chase. Um, and jujitsu offers that for me. The, the gym that I train at, the instructors are unbelievably qualified. They're unbelievably diligent about making sure that we are qualified to, to represent whatever belt we hold. Um, I looked to compete a little bit later this summer. I'd actually said May or June, but May really filled up for me quite quickly. Um, I'm, I'm going to be traveling a, a lot and I don't want to try to compete missing trainings and things like that. And then June coming off a rough May would be difficult for me to compete as well. But looking at something maybe in July or early August, nevertheless, those are things that, that if you really take away more than all the words that I've said and the ramblings that I've done, it really comes down to discipline, financial discipline to build the life and, and preserve the life that I, that I have constructed and, and look forward to constructing as I go. And then also the discipline to adhere to something with a path that has a, that has a clear cut vision and a clear steps of progression. You know, if I, if I quit jujitsu now, then I'm going to be looking for something else to fill that void, to, to better myself, to give my, my training reason, to give my nutrition reason and all of those things. So yeah, I think, I think 
those two things give me individual individual enhancement and and focus. So I know they're kind of obtuse, but that would be it. I think. Gotcha. What about you? So one of them is pretty much along the same lines. Uh, so I'm looking at within two years, um, all of my debt except for my mortgage um, being paid off. And so then I'll only have then I'll only have a mortgage left. Mm-hmm. So that that's a that's a big one for me. And then the other one is probably within five between five and seven years because um, we, we refinanced the house in 2019. So the extra cost for refinancing would be made up after five or six years of being in the house. That's what would make it worth it having refinanced. So selling before then, I would actually have lost money on refinancing. So we'll probably wait it out and then find a a different house, not necessarily a bigger one um, or a more expensive one, but one that's uh, laid out a little better for what we like and have a yard where I might be able to throw up some kind of building outside um, that would be a combination of things to like hold my gym, um, hold some type of studio or room to, you know, where me and my friends can gather and, uh, sit around a table, play games, drink beer, drink bourbon, watch football games, uh, have an easy access to the, to outside to grill or, uh, boil crawfish, things like that. Um, yeah. So looking at something like that within the next five to six years. So it doesn't have to be anything more expensive or bigger than what we live in right now, but just a little better laid out than the house we currently live in. Yeah. I appreciate that too. Cause that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for in a cabin. You know, I, I literally do want it to be the place where I die. Um, as far as live out my days there. So, I'll probably have a little bit more freedom or oversight on the, on the layout of what exactly what I want. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, a guy that did that very, very, very well. Um, and as you can imagine, when I say his name, you'll recognize the the way that he does things would, would lead you to understand how well he built his house is Josh Smith. Um, whenever his, he was living in a, tr- uh, a home, it burned down and then they bought a camper while they, uh, rebuilt their new home and he took the kids and he bought this property and it was, it was just a dump. I mean, it, it had a lot of old rusted out cars and a lot of debris and trash on it and whatnot. So he bought it for a very, very fair price and it's on the river bottom, uh, out in Montana. And, uh, he ended up staking off like the plot that he wanted for the house to be on. And he had the kids stand He's like, do you think we need a window here? Like, let's look at the views before we put up the first wall and figure out where we want the windows and where we want the the sun to come in the morning and the sun to set at night and all that kind of stuff. His house is one of my favorite houses I've ever been in. And it's it's not extreme in a sense of like extravagance and wealth, but it is so well built and so well thought out. That's that's what I would hope somebody would say 
about the house that I envision building one day. You know, is that, man, this is a really perfect representation of who you are. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, a lot different than the house I'm in right now where the garage is in the front of the house and then basically the front door. It's almost like a, uh, a modern day shotgun house. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's deeper in the lot than it is wide. And so the only window that we have to the front of the house, to the front street is the front door. Mm-hmm. And then we have windows on, on the sides of the house. Um, and then there's a long hallway that goes from the living room to the back of that, to the back door. And then all of the, the bedrooms and, and the bathrooms are off of that hallway. Um, but it's annoying because the kitchen's in the front right next to the living room. So if we want to hang out and grill in the backyard, we have to walk down the entire hallway to go back there. So you're carrying all this stuff. You're walking down the hallway, go out the back door, you're grilling and hanging out. If you need to go in and do anything in the kitchen, you got to walk through the entire hallway. So it's just kind of, it's kind of bothersome. And it sounds funny when you say the back door is at the back of the house. It's like, well, mm-hmm. duh. Well, well, duh, but the back of the house is so far removed from the living area of our house. Right. Well, what else you want? What else are you going to do in five years? Hopefully within those five years, I'll have also started some jujitsu training as well. Um, yeah. I... I am not a complete newbie to um, martial arts. When I was a, a young kid, uh, probably between seven and ten, so probably started around Jules's age. Uh, my parents got us into Taekwondo. Okay. And I think I I'm trying to remember what color belts there were. Um, whatever was right before a red belt. I think okay. I think I was a blue belt. I think that was blue. And I made it to a blue belt. My sister, however, actually made it all the way to a first degree black belt in Taekwondo. Okay. So, but that's been, that's been years, but uh, I really enjoyed that. So the thing I, the thing I like about, um, the thing I like about jujitsu is honestly, in every fight that I've ever found myself in, in my life, it's, it's not the, the stand-up punching kind of deal. You know, there's usually a punch or two thrown, maybe a couple more, but almost every single fight I've ever been in has ended up on the ground at some level, you know. And the cool thing about jiu-jitsu, you know, especially in a modern, modern time where everybody seems to be litigious as far as if you say the wrong thing, people want to sue you. And... You know, if you find yourself in any kind of altercation and you hit someone, I mean, this is something my instructor talks about all the time. If you hit somebody in the face or you, you know, hit them in the, you know, hit them in the face and they fall back and God forbid have some kind of brain bleed or they, it causes some kind of like long-term trauma, um, the person who hit them is ultimately responsible for that. So for me, kind of crafting a skill to where I could defend myself if someone threw a punch, but also very quickly take them to the ground and restrain them in such a way that I'm not necessarily damaging them any further 
than was necessary or with just enough control to say, hey, um, I'm, I'm in the driver's seat here and you're the, you're the unwilling passenger. So maybe you're not as mad at, the, at this situation as you thought kind of deal. You know, I'm, I'm not looking to whip anybody's ass and I certainly don't want my ass whipped. But uh, it is nice to have that confidence to know that if things got a little salty, that I would be okay. You know, that's why I like jujitsu. Definitely. It reminds me when I was a kid and I, I misbehaved and my dad was on shift work. And so mm-hmm. my, my brother was the only one home and I was just a little badass kid. And uh, <laughs> sometimes I needed to be restrained. And I just remember my brother taking me to the ground and basically sitting on me and I couldn't do a damn thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Uh, did I ever tell you the story about the time my dad drew the the blanket back when I was in a, we were building a house at the time and we were staying in an old house, had a window unit that damn near spit ice chips. It was so cold, but I was late for school or running late on his terms. I was running late and, uh, he came in and just kind of drew the covers back and all that cold air hit me. So I just kind of kicked with my leg to catch the, the blanket and pull it back over me. But I ended up kicking him in the leg. <laughs> so he put my head under his arm, like under in his armpit, the back of my head was in his armpit and his left hand scooped under both knees. So my ass was like sticking out away from him. And with his right hand, he was just like clenching me in the side of my ass. <laughs> he said, never again, never again. <laughs> so, yeah, my dad, he, he never, like, straight up beat me or my brothers. You know, he'd spank us here and there if we did something stupid. But I look back, and, man, some of the times that I got whipped for things, like I was thinking what an asshole he was. No, I was a complete asshole. I was the worst-behaved kid ever. I was always in trouble. Like, be back before dark. I'd come back five minutes after dark. Don't go across the road. I would go up the road and then cross the road. You know what I mean? Like any way that I could just break a rule, I was always doing that shit. So, <laughs> man, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, I think we've run out of run out of shit to talk about. But I'll get this posted up um, either later today or in the morning. So I appreciate it, man. Sounds good. Thanks, man. All right, brother. Have a good day, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, you too. Love you. Love you too, man. Bye. Bye.